It's great to be here this morning. We were playing chicken with the weather, trying to decide whether to fly our airplane over here or not, but it was too foggy and we drove. Um, well, it's sitting over in Grand Rapids, Minnesota right now. Th- that used to be our hometown when I was a little kid and my, my dad used to work for the United States government on construction projects all over uh, the United States. And one night, he came home from work and he decided that he needed to broaden my horizons. I was four years old and dad decided that this was the time to introduce foreign missions. And so he bought this big picture book, but he made a mistake. He bought the wrong book. He thought he had something nice from National Geographic. He was going to show me all the beautiful pictures of how uh, the, the people lived in the Andes Mountains down in Colombia and in Ecuador. And we got into this book, and it was awful. It showed the drunkenness, the poverty, the bloody machete fights, the absolute despair and hopelessness. And so by now, he's trying to get rid of this thing. He's trying to get it uh, out of here because he realized it wasn't material for four-year-olds. And I pried it open, got one last look at the last page that showed this family sitting beside the road. The husband had been in a bloody machete fight. He was passed out drunk in the ditch. The wife and six or eight little kids are sitting there waiting for him to sober up so they can go home, work for another week, and then repeat the same thing. Go to market town, sell their produce, and watch your dad get drunk and fight with everybody in town. And so I turned to my dad and I said, why do they live like that? And my dad said, I don't know. I guess no one ever went to share the gospel with them. Well, why hasn't anyone gone? And dad said, well, I guess no one really cares about those people enough to go share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Well, why doesn't anyone care? And then I turned around and I stared my dad straight in the eyes and I said, but you care, don't you, dad? And he said uncomfortably, yes, son, I care. So I said, well, why don't we go help them? This wasn't where Dad was planning to go with this devotional after. And uh, my dad started to stammer around, and he said, well, you, you just can't take off for South America. Why, that would be missionary work. And... Uh, in order to be a missionary, you'd have to be called. God would have to call you. And in order to go, God would have to open the doors. And God would have to provide the finances. He, went, he laid it all on God. And then, kind of to get back things back on track, he said, maybe when you grow up, you can be a missionary. Well, I wasn't getting anywhere with him. So I climbed off his lap and knelt beside the sofa and prayed in a loud voice like he'd been teaching me to do before going to bed. 
and said, in a, so that my mother heard it all the way out in the kitchen, Dear God, please call my parents to be missionaries so I won't have to wait till I grow up. And my mom tells, tells the story afterwards. She said, when she heard that little prayer, she thought, oh no. <laughs> that, that one is going to be heard and answered. And it was. And four years later, when I was eight years old, we were in Colombia, South America, as missionaries. My dad uh, was picked by William Cameron Townsend, the head of the Wycliffe Bible Translators, to lead the translation effort in 42 languages in Colombia and Panama. And I grew up traveling around to all these remote rural areas with my dad. I did my studies, including high school, by correspondence. And I was my dad's partner. And um, got to do really fun stuff like run around out with the Motulone Indians with Bruce Olson, go hunting with him. Um, it wasn't boring. And of course, my heroes were our missionary pilots. And so I wanted to be a pilot and eventually got to be one and actually got to begin flying in missions at 19 years old. And flew a lot of missionaries around, did a lot of projects, marked up a lot of statistics, and then something really awful happened. The communist guerrillas got to the point where they surged and began a ruthless drive to eliminate evangelical Christianity from rural Colombia. We're talking the same spirit that's in North Korea. The same kind of thing where in North Korea, if there's a Christian family and they're discovered, they don't just kill the Christian family, they kill the neighbors on either side because they failed to report it. And this is the kind of thing that hit rural Colombia. And pastors started getting shot and killed. Church buildings started getting burned down. And missionaries began to flee. And if the missionaries didn't want to go, the large missions pulled them out because they didn't want to take the risk and the liability. And so all of a sudden, I found myself one of the few remaining missionaries in eastern Colombia after over 800 missionaries had been pulled out and thousands of pastors had fled and the statistics got so ugly that Colombia became the number one country on the face of the earth number one for Christian martyrs particularly pastors and held that position for almost 20 years and so I can remember thinking, well, you know, I'm sure the Lord's got a great reward in stall for me for sticking it out here, you know. And, um, well, a few months after that, and, and oh, and then, and then I was, of course, you know, praying that the gospel would be sent to these terrorists that were wrecking all this havoc. 
and they'd made it so that in eastern Columbia, not only could you not have a church meeting or an evangelistic meeting, you couldn't even have a home meeting. Even two people singing a Christian song together would be in serious trouble if it was found out. And so I'm praying that God will send the gospel to the FARC guerrillas, F-A-R-C, which means Armed Revolutionary Forces of Columbia. And um, guess what happened? They kidnapped me and tied me to a tree out in the middle of one of their camps. And I'm trying to figure out why the Lord didn't protect me like he always had. And um, and about the third day of being tied to this tree, I, oh, and I, then I'd been complaining to my mom before this happened. I just am having real trouble hearing the voice of the Lord. I, I just can't hear from God. You know, it's all fuzzy. I, I'm, it's confusing. I, I don't know what the Lord's trying to tell me. He's trying to say something and I can't, I can't catch it, you know? Have you ever felt like that? Well, after three days tied to a tree in the middle of this rebel camp, all of a sudden I started hearing from the Lord clear. <laughs> and um, the Lord wanted to know why I was so upset because I'd been praying for the gospel to be sent to the gorillas and here I was in the middle of their camp and well, how come I'm complaining? You know? I was the one that prayed for this. I thought, well, you know, give them a tract, let them hear a radio broadcast, you know, maybe they can find a Bible someplace. I, I didn't think that God was going to send me. But, you know, of course, I had been praying about being a missionary from early on. And the Lord gave us a ministry to those rebel guerrillas. And if you want the rest of the story, the, the book is back there on the, on the book table for a free will donation. And um, you can read it. Along with the message that the Lord gave me to share with them. And after five months, and after I was released, the Lord greatly amplified our ministry. Because I started getting speaking engagement opportunities all over the world. The book went all over the world, and the Lord opened the door for us to have a very positive ministry in the areas of conflict in Colombia and even in other countries. And so all these pastors got killed. A number of missionaries were also kidnapped, most of them killed, and people began to put resources aiming it towards Columbia. Christians started donating for Bibles, for radio stations, for ministry. And, and as they would come and try and find, you know, how are we going to do this? We were virtually the only ones left. So we were sitting out there in Eastern Columbia thinking like Elijah, you know, we're the we're the last ones left, and, and she's after us, you know? And, um, and God was mobilizing all of these logistics. And I mean, you're not going to believe this, but I was given a million Bibles, 
two million books written by Richard Wormbrand against communism. Another million books that we wrote and published and that were financed. Um, close to 50 radio transmitters, including one of the largest radio transmitters in South America that got donated to us by, of all people, the Disney Corporation. And I could go on and on and on. We, um, missionary aviation was over. All the missionary organizations that had airplanes had pulled out. And somebody came along and gave us an airplane. And I'd been out of aviation for 25 years. Uh, you know, I gave up the airplane and thought that the Lord was going to provide a better one you know, later. You know, that, that thought. But it didn't happen for 25 years because... See, I, I thought I was good as a pilot. But it's not necessarily where we think we're good that God's interested in. And so God chose to use me in areas where I didn't think I was capable of anything. And I really wasn't without the Lord. And then when he restored aviation, all of a sudden, he didn't just give us one airplane, he gave us five. The next thing we know, we had airplanes coming out of our ears. And um, and so we began dropping parachutes on the rebel camps. At first in the daytime, and then after getting some airplanes shot up, we got night vision goggles and tried it at night. And then finally, the general in charge of the Colombian Armed Forces said, called me and he said, look, he said, um, you're going to get yourself killed. Um let us help you. Just train our pilots and teach them how to do what you're doing and, and, um, and we'll do it. And I found myself standing in front of 80 Air Force pilots telling them how to find guerrilla camps in the middle of the night by using the night vision equipment and how to drop our parachutes on them. With, oh, and then we were up in Canada at a missions convention and a Canadian guy, really um, excellent guy, the founder of a mission called Galcom, came and said, what would it take to make a lasting impression for the Lord in Colombia? And since I knew he'd made these little solar powered radios that lock on to a given frequency, I said, well, if we had, we, we got a, men, a million men and women fighting in this war directly or indirectly, between all the sides. If we had one of your little radios for every 10 combatants, I think that would make a difference. He said, well, these radios are $35 each. You just asked for $3.5 million worth of radios. He said, but we're good. we'll do it. He said, let's join hands and pray. We're going to ask God to do this. And God did it through a single donor who's now with the Lord. Well, as this got more advanced, uh, we, we started making friends with some of these gorillas as they were turning to the Lord, except for, and that's the tricky part, see, because the strategy was a three-legged stool. Literature, of course, the most important book is the Bible. Um, radio broadcasts, and we do a lot of scripture on the radio, and preaching and teaching based on the Bible. 
But the third and most important point is personal contact. You don't really make breakthroughs for the Lord without risking something and not just your pocketbook. If you want to make inroads for the Lord, you need to be able to risk yourself. Up here, it's just risking maybe a little uncomfortableness or maybe a little bit of your reputation. But to go evangelize down there, you literally risk your life. And lots of people have paid with their life for doing that. But the early church always said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so guess what happened? It, the, the, the story of the Apostle Paul started to repeat itself. You remember he's out there persecuting Christians and helping to kill Christians. And the next thing you know, the Lord taps him on the shoulder and says, Hey, you, you're going to replace some of these guys you know, that you did in. Have you tried to apply all of the, you know, the, what we teach about evangelism to the conversion of the Apostle Paul? You know, the four points, the seven points, the, you know, you have to do this and that, and, and, and you come forward and you repent and you repeat this. No, none of that. The Lord just dropped them on the ground and said, from now on you're working for me and it behooves you this, 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 and this. You, know? you don't get the full picture just reading the account where it starts in Acts. You have to go through until Paul tells the testimony a couple times to see what really happened. Explain that one from your theology. It doesn't fit anybody's theology. But it happened. And God did it. And Paul, in fact, he was so affected, he didn't even eat or drink anything for three days waiting for the Lord to show him the next step. And he was absolutely fearless. And so these people that have been out there persecuting Christians and killing Christians, when they finally get converted, they get, some of them get what I call an Apostle Paul complex. How do you get an Apostle Paul complex? friend of mine who's now with the Lord we went back you know after his mission and his group had been ran out of southeastern Colombia and we went back and had a set of meetings out there in the middle of the grill area and he preached on the apostle Paul and he said that that thorn in the side that Paul had that he couldn't get rid of and people have speculated whether it was his health or his eyesight or, you know, all kinds of different ideas. And maybe some of them are valid. I don't know. But, but anyway, this friend of mine said that thorn in the side was the fact that he had killed Christians. That he had persecuted Christians. He couldn't get away from the thought. And that is what drove him forward. He wouldn't give up. He didn't care if somebody was going to try and kill him. He didn't care if he was going to get thrown in jail or, or beaten. Or, he, he didn't care. The only thing he worried about was what did the Holy Spirit want him to do next? And so now if there are converted gorillas running around doing that exact same thing. And if you want to know the next part of the story, well, there's a movie back there called La Montaña. It's in Spanish, but it has English subtitles. And the guerrilla commander in that movie was the guy that was in on my original kidnapping, got the top leader to 
let me go eventually because he told them they kidnapped the wrong guy. And we made friends over the years. You, have, have any of you read the C.S. Lewis Narnia books? Yeah. Well, if you want to know what the gorillas are like, it's like the black dwarfs in the, in the, in the Narnia books. The dwarves are for the dwarves, you know? And you got these, and, and like nick a brick, and they're in with the, they're in with the witch. And the whole thing is a godless mess. But there's red dwarfs, like Trumpkin. And he's friendly. So anyway, in the middle of all these gorilla camps, I started running into some red dwarfs, you know? And they started befriending me. And we started to think about how to end the war. And eventually, they got invited to Havana, Cuba to negotiate a peace negotiation. And I got invited to accompany them and to be the first victim that they would publicly apologize to. And then that led to me being kind of a semi-official chaplain to the peace process, to the guerrillas and to the Colombian military. And then that also involved ministry to high-ranking Cubans. My dad always said that the Lord likes to play counter-spy on a spiritual level. And so in order to get this job in Havana, I had to have the approval of the United States government, of the Colombian government, and of the Cuban government, and of the FARC rebel guerrilla movement. What were the possibilities of all that coming together? And then when we got there, they wouldn't let us have a, a place. You know, you couldn't own anything. As a foreigner, it's very restricted. But they were trying to foment their marinas that were virtually vacant. And so there was all kinds of incentives if anybody wanted to dock a boat at the marina. So I got this idea, you know, I can't have an office, but what if we got a boat? You know, a big boat. And, you know, in my mind I'm thinking, yeah, you know, it has to have enough room, you know, where they can come. It'll be a safe place where they can talk freely without fear of being overheard or recorded or anything like this. And then, um, what if we put a Christian radio station in it? You know, just kind of as frosting on the cake. Never mind that clandestine radio uh, is, has a penalty of 38 years in prison in Cuba. And um, so I'm thinking, and so I stopped off to see his friend in Indiana. And before we left in the plane, he said, um, I got these friends that would like to meet you. Could, you know, I was gonna take off at the track of dawn and um, could you just, you know, have breakfast with these guys? We, you know, we'll have breakfast at 6.30 down at this restaurant, you know? So, yeah. And so I'm telling them all this and, and telling them about how the Lord started touching people. And then we had, see, I didn't want to have to argue with the, with the communists. When somebody's caught up with a spirit, a bad spirit, an evil spirit, and these evil spirits can either get, I mean, like evil, evil, ugly, like in the communists, or they can get like religious ugly and get right in the middle of Christian congregations. And, but one thing that I found out about spirits 
And people can have a spirit on the outside influence them, or they can actually have that spirit on the inside possessing them. You know? There's all kinds of degrees of problems that you can have with evil spirits. And none of these spirits are clean, even if they try and act like they are. But you can't reason with them. You cannot reason with a spirit. They'll tie you up in knots. They'll run the They'll go all up and down. They'll blow the biggest smoke screen you ever saw in your life, but you won't get anywhere. See, the only thing that will overcome an evil spirit is the power of God. They—they're not concerned in the slightest about us, but they greatly fear the Lord. And so we don't want to just go endlessly around, you know, arguing with spirits. In fact, Jesus, in Jesus' ministry, in every occasion except for once or twice, he basically told them to shut up and leave. You know? And they did. And so I have a friend named Albert, and Albert's going to be 94 next month. And he has a phenomenal healing ministry. And so I invited Albert to Cuba. And we went over there, and God backed us up, and some phenomenal miracles took place, including major victories over evil spirits. And that's what gave us the beachhead. these communist ideologues were full of spirits. And uh, they weren't happy campers. And the Lord got us in there. And some of the Cubans, too, were affected. And so I was telling this to these guys at breakfast and about how one of the worst ones had written us a, just a real heartbreaker of a letter saying what our presence there had meant to him and how he had been delivered. And so these guys said to me, you know, they were businessmen from Indiana, and they said, well, what do you think the next step ought to be? And I said, I, I think we need a boat. And they said, what, how much do you think the boat would cost? And I hadn't given that much thought, but a number just popped into my head. And I said, I think $100,000. And so we climbed in the plane and left. And when we landed in Oklahoma, there was a message waiting for me to, to give them a call. And they said, um, we're willing to lend you this $100,000 with no interest just tell us where to send it. Well, it turns out in order to get into Cuba, I needed the boat in my name. I didn't want it in the name of a mission because that would have really had the potential to mess things up. And so, of course, I received the money and I went out and bought the boat and I put it in my name. And this is after I had my brother negotiate a $250,000 boat and he got it for eighty-six. 
And we were joking that uh, if we had let him negotiate anymore, he, the guys that owned the boat would have had to pay us to receive their boat. But anyway. <laughs> um, but now I'm sitting there with a $100,000 debt, and then it dawns on me, I can't use mission money to pay this back. And our Canadian mission can't contribute to something that's in my name. In other words, I just got myself into a $100,000 debt and all of the costs that go with it, see? Personally. But we sailed this thing to keep, we, we, put a, we built a radio station into the, into the boat, a very powerful one, and we sailed it to Havana in the middle of a storm and um, got there and the gorillas loved it. It was their clubhouse. You know? they would, they'd have a rough meeting at the peace negotiations and their sparks would be flying and, and especially one of these, the chief negotiator, he used to be demon-possessed and he was about the only sane one down there and they'd kick him out of the meeting and he'd come over to the boat and cool off, you know. And so, you know, as it got, you know, clear, more and more of a marina, and, you know, that, you know, they've been doing the wrong revolution. You know, we ought to be revolutionaries, but for Jesus Christ. And, um, and it's his kingdom that's going to topple all the kingdoms of this world. There's nothing that's going to remain standing. So it's not worth uh, getting a big fight over politics. We, we, we need to press home the gospel. So I said, uh, 56 years ago, we used to have a friend with a Christian radio station here in Havana, and the communists kicked him out. And so I figured they owed us a Christian radio station. And so, and we've been wanting to make a comeback. So I, st I showed him all the stuff on the boat, and I said, you know, now should we turn this on or not? You know, we're sitting there in the harbor. And I said to him, are we revolutionaries or not? Oh, no, we're revolutionaries, you know. Well, are we going to do this? Yeah. See? So um, with their backing, I turned this thing on. And it said, um, we had a name for it, and then we said this was by satellite, you know. Well, we did have satellite equipment on the boat, too, but um, they couldn't find it. They looked all over. They couldn't find it. And people were calling one another. They never had a Christian radio station for all these years. It went over big in Havana. And we kept it going until the peace negotiations were over and the peace treaty was signed. And I'm sure it bore some results. I, I'm not running it anymore because the girls have left and I don't want to be sitting there all by myself if I get found out. But um, it is legal for us to, to put on the air if we're 12 miles out to sea in international waters, and we do have international permission to transmit. So we can sail around 12 miles out and, and, um, and turn on the radio station. And um, So anyway, all of these gorillas that for one reason or another were... Um, virtual slaves and 
basically cannon fodder, the ones who didn't have their heart in it, they all got an opportunity out of this. And a number of them are serving the Lord now. And the guy that invited me to Havana, he stood up in Havana and declared himself to be a Christian on international television. And different powers that be didn't like that, so they kicked him out of Havana. But in the meantime, he'd made friends with the consul down at the Venezuelan embassy who was a Christian. And that guy took him to Venezuela and introduced him to all kinds of people down there. And there is a tremendous revival lit off inside Venezuela right now among important people. Of all these, the coalition keeping Maduro in power is five political parties. And they all have different points of view. And his party, of course, is the Communist Party. But then there's other parties. And then, like, Colombia has 50, 50 million people, roughly. And among all the armed forces, maybe there's 200 generals. In Venezuela, there's less than 30 million people, and there's over 2,000 generals. And the generals run everything. And a lot of them are corrupt. But a number of them are Christians, and they're not corrupt. And so the, the founder of the modern Venezuela movement starting 20 years ago is a man named Hugo Chavez. And Hugo Chavez took some advice from Fidel Castro. Castro told him, look, we unnecessarily molested the evangelical Christians in Cuba and they turned against us. And we haven't been able to recover their loyalty. But you don't have to do that in Venezuela. He suggests that you try and get them on board from the very beginning. So they pitched the socialist communism to the evangelicals and got 80% of the evangelicals on board. And these evangelicals didn't realize what was going to happen next because they nationalized all the church buildings. All the church buildings belonged to the communists. And they nationalized all the children. All the children belonged to the state. And then once they've got the church building, once they've got the children, once they own your Christian school, once they own everything, then basically everybody has to do what they say. And so, um, Hugo Chavez also ran around Venezuela with a constitution, a new constitution about Simón Bolívar under one arm and a Bible under the other arm. And he's always waving around the Bible so that the evangelicals would vote for him. That was another tactic to get their vote. Well, but he never allowed Bibles to be imported. He never allowed Bibles to be printed. So Venezuela has been virtually 20 years with no Bibles. And 20 years ago when this all started, there were less than 2 million Christians. Now, today, there's 8 million. So you had an original 2 million Christians, a million and a half of them roughly went along with the communists. And now you've got 8 million Christians of which the vast majority of them don't like what's happened in Venezuela and realize they've lost their freedom and not only their freedom but their food and their work and everything. People starving to death, people eating their pets, people just in the most awful problems. And uh, one of these Bibles, 
we have these Bibles printed in China. And the Spanish edition is large print because the people don't have glasses either. And it says printed on China. And China is the one country that they'll receive things from. If you bring something from the United States, the order is you have to, burn it to be burned at the border. Any aid from the United States has to be burned at the border. Any aid from Colombia has to be burned at the border. Any aid from Brazil has to be burned at the border. But anything from China, even though the border is officially closed, it goes right straight through. So we have these Bibles printed in China. The boxes say printed in China, great big on them. And the Bibles all say printed in China. And uh, we get welcomed in. What are you doing at the border? No, I'm just here bringing this donation of Bibles from China. Oh, come right in, you know. And, um, and everybody wants the Bible. And so they licensed me, an official licensed minister and missionary. It's never been heard of before. And the license is good in Cuba. And Bolivia. And Nicaragua. And uh, they didn't even charge me. It's supposed to be a $250 fee. And they said, no, you know, you've, you've been helping. Their word for help, helper is collaborator, you know. So I show up with suitcases, all these big suitcases full of stuff, you know, in Cuba. Who are you? I'm a collaborator. In you go, you know. So, um, anyway, you're right. The Lord does have a sense of humor. And politically, these places are a horrible mess. But, and spiritually, even though there's a lot of confusion, it's getting consolidated. And the Venezuelan Christians and pastors are the best quality we've ever seen in any country that we've visited. That doesn't mean they're all perfect, but anybody that's stuck it out, pastor and congregation in, in Venezuela, where the pastor normally has to work night and day just to make sure that some of his people don't starve to death, literally. Those people are not selfish. I just read a little book by a guy that I just met. It puts it in perspective, you know. The word perfection in the scripture, in Greek and in Hebrew, is the exact same thing as the word for mature or for maturity. And what is maturity? It's when we don't center on ourselves. It's when we center on the Lord and on serving others instead of seeking our own benefit. That's maturity. And unless we come to a certain level of maturity, there are certain responsibilities that God will not delegate to us. It's particularly responsibility in the spiritual realm. So we're seeing people in some of these difficult places where God is delegating major spiritual responsibility. I mean, we've all been to meetings. You've been to meetings where someone was miraculously he healed. 
But have you been to a meeting where everyone was healed? We've been to meetings like that. I'm not saying everybody was healed with everything that was wrong with them, but I'm saying everybody was healed of something. No gasoline, no transportation, and you can still come and have over a thousand people that will walk for hours and hours to get to the meeting. I've never seen so many hernias in my life. Little babies with hernias, elders with hernias, people with three or four hernias, you know. And I was there with Albert, and Albert would just put his finger on his hernia, and every time he touched a hernia, it would disappear. And all kinds of other things. And, and sometimes really serious things. They took us to see a lady who had been flat on her back for three years. She was missing a piece of her backbone. Couldn't even sit up in bed. Couldn't get to the bathroom. Just covered with bed sores. And Albert prayed for her and started getting her to move her different joints. and. After 10 minutes, she got up and walked. He'll be 84 in a couple weeks. 94. And has done really well. I've seen gifted people, you know, before the gift of healing, but not like this one. And, and not to the extent of what we've seen with Albert in terms of missing body parts being restored and one thing about Albert is I've never seen him take an offering I've never seen him ask for anything the Lord told him when he called him he said I've made you financially independent you work for me and you had to go to Columbia he still doesn't speak Spanish, but he spent 35 years going to Colombia at his own expense, praying for all the people who got wounded in the war. I mean, the bullet holes disappear. You, know? you can't even tell. Pretty amazing. But you come to some places, and people don't get healed. Jesus came to places where... Nobody got healed. Or not very many got healed. Why am I saying all this? I'm just telling you that Venezuela is ripe right now like I've rarely seen. 30 million people, 8 million of them are converted. The next election is in four years and they think there'll be enough Christians in four years to elect a Christian president and that that will be the solution for Venezuela. I don't know. You know, Maybe there's not a possibility of getting a, a fair election. But people right inside the presidential palace are getting converted. Generals are getting converted. Top politicians are getting converted. We got into the state legislature with the state senators and representatives. They stopped the session, turned it over to us, and turned it into a... Um, we took pictures and said, is this a church service? No, this is the state legislature. You know? <laughs> Everybody's waving their Bible and they're all praying. And, you know. 
and preaching for hours and, and uh, so why am I saying this? We, I got the idea that we need a million Bibles for Venezuela just like we did a million Bibles for Colombia but because we're not generating martyrs burn church buildings that kind of graphic images the money just isn't there nobody wants to help like pulling teeth we've been able over the last five years to put 100,000 Bibles into Venezuela but the need is huge can you imagine 8 million Christians most of whom don't have Bibles and congregations where not even the leaders not even the pastors have Bibles what are the possibilities of this revival staying on track with no Bibles? I mean, essentially, in order to be converted, in order to serve the Lord, and in order to multiply your faith, you really don't absolutely have to have a Bible. And the early church is a good example, but where did that go? It eventually went to the Dark Ages. And it wasn't until the printing press and the Reformation that things recovered. And so some friends of mine from an organization started by Richard Wormbrand, you're probably familiar with Voice of the Martyrs, but Richard Wormbrand started another organization that isn't known because Voice of the Martyrs was to put out the word of what's happening to persecuted Christians. But if you use the name Voice of the Martyrs and want to go to Cuba or Venezuela or someplace like that, uh, that's not a good idea because they don't like Voice of the Martyrs. And they'll probably do something very bad to you if you go over there and tell them you like Voice of the Martyrs. So they started this other organization called ICR, International Christian Response. And that's the organization that actually put the Bibles behind the Iron Curtain, that actually put the literature behind the Iron Curtain, that actually installed the clandestine radio transmitters behind the Iron Curtain. They're the ones that put the boots on the ground behind enemy lines, and they don't publicize themselves. And so I went with ICR to Venezuela. And they said, are you sure you can place a million Bibles in Venezuela? I said, well, we've tried every possible scenario and we've never been rejected. We've never lost the Bible. The only one that got mad was this one lady at an immigration office and the immigration office had already been burned down so there wasn't even any place for her to have an office to even stamp anybody's passport but she tried to arrest our people as they were leaving Venezuela because they didn't have their passports stamped and the pastor that was leading the, the, the group looked at her and said you're a Cuban witch aren't you and she said yeah and broke into tears and said I'm, 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 I'm totally miserable please help me I, I can't get rid of these spirits and so after they cast the demons out of her, she was just fine. So anyway, after we got back from there with ICR, they said, no, no um, you got the wrong goal. We need at least two million Bibles for Venezuela. So they doubled the project. But we're still having a huge problem trying to get this funded. So that's the number one prayer request. And... In Colombia, we did a million Bibles over a 10-year period, 100,000 a year. And we've now, this year, we'll finish the first 100,000 Bibles into Venezuela. But we haven't got 10 years. I mean, this needs to be done 
absolutely as soon as possible. And these Bibles need to be mixed in with good books. And so it costs us $5 in China to print one of these nice study Bibles, and they're very durable. The imitation leather is actually more durable than real leather. And to give them two or three good books and get this all delivered and positioned into Venezuela, it's about $10 a person. That's not a bad investment. Considering what the change that that can, or the enhancement that it can do to someone's ministry. The guy that's running the Bibles for Venezuela project on the Colombian side was raised in our family, and I hadn't seen him. My mother raised him, and then when he left our home to go back to where he came from, the last thing she did was baptize him and prayed for him. And I found him out there 45 years later, still going on well with the Lord. He married a lady that used to be the governor of the state and knows absolutely everybody. Even though he doesn't have any money of his own. Anyway, we got him, a, we got him an old Jeep and uh, he's busy working on installation now for us to move one of our shortwave transmitters. We're going to move it to the Venezuela border and we'll be able to hit the entire country of Venezuela. All the communists, because they've taken down the internet in many places, the, the news, the, the radio stations have fallen into disrepair. The communist communists, either the, you know, guerrillas or whatever faction that they're in, they receive their orientation and their orders and their, you know, keeping them in line type of thing from Radio Havana, Cuba, transmitted on shortwave. And Radio Havana, Cuba transmits on 6,000 kilohertz. And we transmit on 6010. So anybody trying to tune in Radio Havana finds us. And they're curious. And then Radio Havana transmits on 5,000, and we also have 5010. So if we get this first transmitter installed out there, we're going to put in the second one. And that's what we're working on on this side of the river. And also FM installations, like the one we just put in, in a chicken coop on a big rock overlooking a Venezuelan city of 250,000 people. Just got that done with our friend Ray Rising. He said, that's the first time, he's a radio, missionary radio man, the first time he ever put one in a chicken coop. On the other side of the river, the guy in charge of the Bible distribution is a former gorilla the one I made friends with and that I compared with Trumpkin the dwarf the one that got kicked out of Havana for declaring himself to be a Christian and he also got licensed as an official minister in Venezuela and his wife did too and so can you imagine they spent 40 years as gorillas and he said he wasted 40 years of his life I said no you didn't because everywhere you went you invited me and I went in there and I just gave Bibles and literature to everyone in your whole area and put in a radio station and all those radio stations are still on the air I said you didn't waste 40 years but he never went to a church meeting in 40 years can you imagine and now guess what he does he travels all over Venezuela going to church meetings passing out Bibles to all the people in all these churches and his observations of these different churches is absolutely priceless 
he got into one and they came, all came up to him and said, brother, what is your gift? What is your spiritual gift? He didn't know how to handle that one, so he said, well, my gift is passing out Bibles. And so the pastor came over and said, no, brother, your, your gift is to serve others, and you're doing it well. And, you know, he's found churches, it's just a bunch of yelling and screaming and no real presence of the Lord, and he's found other churches where he can tell, you know, deep and profound presence of the Lord. And some, you know, are a little bit legalistic in one area, but their hearts are still very desirous of receiving these Bibles. We haven't had a single denomination, a single church in Venezuela reject our Bibles. Isn't that interesting? And this is the Bible translation that I edited, that I spent 10 years doing into Spanish and made sure that everything that's supposed to be in the Bible is in the Bible. It's amazing along the years how people start um, doctoring it up or watering it down, you know? Well, anyway, that's where we are, friends. And I really think that if you pay attention over the years that come, you'll see that the Lord is sparking something in Venezuela and along uh, some of these areas in Colombia that I think is going to be felt all over the place. It's happening kind of out of the way, but... um, both Colombia and Venezuela are at about 25% evangelical Christian right now. When our family went to Colombia 56 years ago, it was less than one half of 1% evangelical Christian. So imagine what will happen if those trends continue. Thank you.